Welcome, my friends. Welcome to this edition of Corbett Report Radio. And I am your host, of course, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you every weeknight right here on Republic Broadcasting. And thanking you all once again for joining me as I broadcast to you live, as always, from my palatial home recording studios here in the sunny climes of western Japan. And it is a bright and sunshiny day over here in Japan. So wherever or whenever or however you might be listening to me, I hope you are having a peaceful day as well. Although, as my listeners are no doubt aware, it's increasingly difficult to have a peaceful day in these extremely trying times. And as I'm sure you are all aware, there are lots and lots of worrying news to keep us preoccupied these days, from the war on Iran to the mess at Fukushima to the collapse of the euro and many other things of monumental importance that are going on in our world. It is sometimes difficult to take our minds off of just the incredible pace of events that are coming at us day after day after day. But it is always helpful when we are able to step out of that and to reflect a little on how we got here and to think about where we're going. So tonight we're going to take a little bit of a departure from covering the day-to-day news and step into a subject that I think personally is absolutely fascinating. And that subject is predictive programming. Now, if you're a regular listener to Republic Broadcasting, you probably have already come across this term from Republic Broadcasting's very own Alan Watt of CuttingThroughTheMatrix.com. And as I understand it, although I'm open to correction on this point, Alan Watt, in fact, coined the term predictive programming to talk about, well, to talk about the ways in which fiction, works of fiction, such as movies or television shows or books or any of the other media that we consume that purport to be fictional portrayals of the real world can in fact be used to embed certain ideas in our consciousness for various reasons. And as Alan Watt has gone through, I think, quite ably in his own broadcasts, he has documented that this is in fact a process that has been known and talked about and philosophized about for thousands of years with, again, the ancient Greeks knowing full well that their plays, which was a central part of the, the Greeks uh, civilization at its, at its height, the plays that they put on were, in fact, extremely important for the formation of their understanding of the world and for their culture. And this is something that perhaps has been lost in our own day and age, as we tend to think of movies and television shows and books as just mindless entertainment, just diversions from what's happening in the real world. But with the concept of predictive programming, we run right up against the idea that far from taking us out of the world, what these works really do is start to structure the world around us in a way that makes us start to accept changes that are coming along the line. Now, in order to understand this concept, I think we have to understand the rather uh, incredible historical moment we're living through. And even I, as a relatively young man, have seen just phenomenal changes over the last 30 years in my own lifespan that I would venture to say probably have not really been seen and faced by any other generation in human history. Now, that's not to say there have not been monumental changes taking place throughout human history, but I think the scale and the scope and the pace of technological change these days is truly unparalleled. And uh, even from my own experience growing up as a schoolboy, doing, of course, all of my homework, just writing out my essays by longhand, which would probably, I don't know, but I imagine for most youngsters these days, that's almost unthinkable. They'll be typing their, their reports or 
I suppose these days they might just be swiping and pushing buttons on their, their iPads and iPhones and their other slave devices. And pretty soon, I'm sure we'll just be talking to our computers. We are going through some incredible changes, and I think there's a way that we are being prepared for these changes. So when we come back, we'll continue talking about the very fascinating subject of predictive programming. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, friends. James Corbett here with you tonight, as always. And, of course, you can reach my work at CorbettReport.com. And tonight we're discussing the fascinating subject of predictive programming, which is to say movies and books and other pieces of fiction that we consume on a daily basis that, in fact, might be preparing our minds for a certain future that the people in the positions of power to make it happen want to have happen. So... Where does, where does this idea come from, and what are some specific examples? Well, what really prompted me to, to start thinking along these lines in the last few days, of course, I have touched on the subject before in my work at CorbettReport.com, but recently I was reading uh, the MediaMonarchy.com post from October 30th of 2008, 70th anniversary of War of the Worlds PSYOP, and it asks the question, sequel soon? And that's a very good question, but I suppose one for perhaps the end of today's broadcast. But at any rate, the 70th anniversary of the War of the Worlds, PSYOP, and perhaps people are at least somewhat familiar with this story back in uh, back on October 30th of 1938. H.G. Wells' famous novel, The War of the Worlds, was aired as a radio play by CBS Mercury Theater on the Air and, of course, another famous Wells, Orson Wells. And that radio play went down in down in history, I suppose, or maybe not for the right reasons. Of course, it managed to provoke a widespread panic because the radio play took the form of a broadcast of just a regular piece of radio, just a, a ballroom dance um, orchestra scene in which the the scene kept being interrupted by a news person announcing that this or that was going to happen or this this or that was happening including the landing of a strange object in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. And as the broadcasts, uh, the interruptions of that broadcast became more and more frequent, it turned out that this thing that had landed was in fact an alien ship that was part of an invasion, and they were the aliens were starting to take over America. And as the story goes, the show just ignited fear and confusion among listeners all across the country, with people even shooting at their grain silos and other such things, believing them to be Martian ships, and all sorts of insanity. And that was an extremely interesting little piece of history that's usually just looked at as just just one of those things. But I think for anyone who's interested in media and the way it affects us, I think we've always known there's something a little bit more to that story. And that little bit more is also posted in that MediaMonarchy.com story, and it comes from Hour of the Time, of course, Bill, the legendary Bill Cooper, who uh, writes about that story. So I'll just read a little bit of that. And it was, uh, it, it says, quote, The premise was tested for credibility with the CBS presentation of The War of the Worlds by Orson Welles and the Mercury Theater on October 30th, 1938. The broadcast was a psychological warfare experiment conducted by the Princeton Radio Project. The Rockefeller Foundation funded the project in the fall of 1937, an office of radio research was set up with Paul F. 
Lazarsfeld as director and Frank Stanton and Hadley Cantrell as associate directors. Cantrell used a special grant from the General Education Board to study the effects of the broadcast. Cantrell published the study as a book titled The Invasion from Mars, A Study in the Psychology of Panic. It contains a complete script of the broadcast. The book is one of a series of studies sponsored by the Federal Radio Education Committee. And it goes on to say that the public believed the War of the Worlds was real, thus setting the stage for the implementation of an alien threat scenario. And then, because that does sound pretty far-fetched, it goes on to quote President Ronald Reagan, no less, who said on this 21st of September 1987 at a General Assembly meeting of the United Nations, quote, in our obsession with antagonisms of the moment, we often forget how much unites all the members of humanity. Perhaps we need some outside universal threat to make us realize this common bond. I occasionally think how quickly our differences would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world, end quote. And as I'm sure, again, as many listeners are probably aware, there is a long, rich history of Project Bluebeam, a Rockefeller-funded idea from the 50s that staging an alien invasion would be a great way to take over more and more of the planet, wouldn't it? Because we would all have to come together to meet this common threat. Or even if it wasn't a threat, even if it was just some some big uh, uh, theatrical light show that was being played in the heavens by the, uh, the chemtrailed skies, we would still be more likely to come together as a human species in the face of such an outside presence, wouldn't we? So there's all Project Bluebeam in the history of that, which I'll let you look into for yourselves. But the point is that this seemingly innocuous radio broadcast of War in the Worlds seemed to be very, very much more than that. So I'll let you go to MediaMonarchy.com for more on that specifically. But as I say, that's something that a lot of people have probably heard at some point in the past. So let's switch over to something that not as many people, I think, will be as familiar with. And that is a really extremely fascinating American writer named Thomas Pynchon. And Thomas Pynchon was born in 19, let's see here, 1937. And as far as I'm aware, he is still alive. But it's difficult to know any of the details about Thomas Pynchon because he is famously, perhaps infamously, camera shy, shall we say. There's very little known about his personal life, although he's written numerous uh, books that have been critically lauded for many decades. And he is really something of a recluse. And Famously, I think there was there were actually no photographs known of Pynchon uh, at all until he appeared supposedly in as a background walk-on that doesn't even say anything, an extra on the John Larroquette show yeah, from NBC back in the 1990s. Um, just a bizarre little thing. And then, of course, he's also appeared on The Simpsons as a uh, character there who wears a bag over his head with a question mark on it, obviously indicating no one really knows very much at all about Thomas Pynchon. So very, very, very interesting person, but perhaps most interesting of all because of his extremely interesting writing. And he has written numerous books, as I say, from V to The Crying of Lot 49 to Gravity's Rainbow to Vineland and Mason and Dixon and others besides. But I think probably his most famous work is Gravity's Rainbow, Perhaps his most accessible work is The Crying of Lot 49. So I will uh, I will leave to you, the dear listener, to go out and check out The Crying of Lot 49 by Thomas Pynchon if you haven't read anything of his before. As I say, I think it's one of his most accessible works, and you can get 
into the story, and once you do, I think you will find it's bizarre and quirky and yet strangely haunting, and there is something really interesting about the whole premise of it. Once you go out and read it, um, maybe you'll start seeing the muted post-horn everywhere. And trust me, you'll get the reference once you read the book. But uh, but certainly, Thomas Pynchon was a purveyor of, I suppose, conspiracy and even paranoia as a form of fiction. So it was, so it was that in 1973 he came to publish Gravity's Rainbow, just a fascinating book that is really beyond description. But I'll read just the short synopsis from Wikipedia. It says the narrative is set primarily primarily in Europe at the end of World War II and centers on the design, production, and dispatch of V-2 rockets by the German military, and in particular, the quest undertaken by several characters to uncover the secret of a mysterious device named the Schwarzkarat, black device, that is to be installed in a rocket with the serial number 00000. And if that synopsis doesn't really tell you very much about the plot. That's because this is one of those, well, I suppose postmodern is a term that's bandied about, but I think it would apply in this case, if in any case, a sort of postmodern novel of, it's, it's an extremely large novel. It's, uh, I don't know how many pages off the top of my head, several hundred pages, and uh, features literally dozens and dozens of characters. So it's really intimidating, and probably uh, a, it's an experience to read it, but it's very difficult to to get yourself immersed in it, but I really would suggest people do try, at least, to conquer Gravity's Rainbow. Just a fascinating book, with lots of fascinating little tidbits and things going on there. But one thing that I thought was, I always thought was extremely interesting, was the story of something called Byron the Bulb. We'll get into that part of Gravity's Rainbow in a little bit, but first I have lined up for you a clip from very recently, and this is not The Onion, this is not a, a joke, this is not a work of fiction, this is from the from the news, and it's a clip that actually has to be heard to be believed. So, if uh, Mike, if you can roll clip one for us, that would be great. Your attention, please. That voice you hear. Your attention, please. Came from this streetlight. Please stand by for a public safety announcement. In each lighting fixture or in each lighting pole, there's a processor very much like an i uh, like an iPhone. And it takes inputs and outputs, it talks back and forth, and the poles actually talk to each other. The ribbon is cut. Inventor Ron Harwood unveiled the intelligent light in a ribbon cutting ceremony. With funding help from the Department of Energy, Harwood's Farmington Hills company, Illuminating Concepts, started designing the wireless communication system after the horrors of September 11th and Hurricane Katrina. And it became really obvious to myself and my staff that we could do something that would make people more informed, make them safer. LED video screens and cameras add to the wireless infrastructure that is remotely controlled. It can provide entertainment, save energy, make announcements. This is a security alert. <laughs> and it even counts people for police. Absolutely amazing, absolutely ridiculous, absolutely outrageous, one might say. And as that report goes on to make clear, it, it actually buries the most important part of that report at the end of it. Um, but it, it talks about how it can record conversations so that they can later be used by police in investigations. I mean, just the level of Orwellian tyranny there is is almost unthinkable. But Amazingly enough, you wouldn't believe it, but this, in fact, was predicted in, in a certain way in Gravity's Rainbow almost uh, three decades ago. I'm sorry, four decades ago. My, how time flies. So 
So we'll come back with a little bit more about the story of Byron the Bull from Gravity's Rainbow, but I thought I would share that that clip with you, and I thought it was interesting how a company called Illuminated Technologies is getting money from the Department of Energy to create streetlights that literally spy on you. You can't make this stuff up, folks. So when we come back, we'll come back with more predictive programming and the story of Byron the Bulb. Corbett Report Radio friends, James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com and coming to you tonight about predictive programming. Basically the idea that if we were presented with some amazing new technology or some new development in our society all at once, a lot of people would freak out about it and would recognize it for the tyranny that it is. But if that idea is presented to us in a work of fiction many, many years beforehand, we seem to be a lot more sanguine about it. We'll accept things that we've heard or read or seen a long time ago, maybe even in our childhood, and locked away for many, many years. And as I say, we are going through some technologically incredible times with all sorts of really mind-blowing innovations coming at us more and more rapidly. And unfortunately, a lot of those innovations are being used, as technology so often is, for tyrannical purposes. And right before the break, we were listening to a a report on IntelliStreets, a brand new light street, street light technology by illuminating concepts with funding from the Department of Energy of lamp posts that can literally spy on you. They listen to you, they can take your picture, they can record your conversations and play them back for police investigators. And I think all of us know that that is tyranny and see it for what it is. But amazingly enough, 40 years ago in Gravity's Rainbow by Thomas Pynchon, a, a really amazing and very, very strange novel. All of this was at least alluded to or perhaps even predicted. And I won't read the whole story of Byron the Bulb, which takes up several pages of this uh, this novel, which, as I say, is a thousand page longs and, and just really intimidating in a lot of ways. But I will just read a, a section of it that talks a little bit about this idea of intelligent light bulbs. It says, quote, There is already an organization, a human one, known as Phoebus, the International Light Bulb Cartel, headquartered in Switzerland, run pretty much by international GE, Osram, and Associated, Associated Electrical Industries of Britain, which are in turn owned 100%, 29%, and 46%, respectively, by the General Electric Company in America. Phoebus fixes the prices and determines the operational lives of all the bulbs in the world, from Brazil to Japan to Holland, although Philips in Holland is the mad dog of the cartel, apt at any time to cut loose and sow disaster throughout the great combination. Given the state of general repression, there seems no place for a newborn baby bulb to start but at the bottom. But Phoebus doesn't know yet that Byron is immortal. He starts out his career at an all-girl opium den in Charlottenburg, almost within sight of the statue of Werner Siemens, burning up in, in a sconce, one among many bulbs witnessed the more languorous form of Republican decadence. He gets to know all the bulbs in the place, Benito the bulb over in the next sconce, who's always planning an escape, Bernie down the hall in the toilet, who has all kinds of urolagnia jokes to tell, 
his mother Brenda in the kitchen, who talks of hashish hush, hush puppies, and the uh, prayers to Astarte and Lilith, queen of the night, reaches into the true night of the other, cold and naked on linoleum floors after days without sleep. The dreams and tears become a natural state, etc., etc. Again, I will uh, I will let you read Gravity's Rainbow for yourself for more on that. But it starts to make the story of this particular light bulb, Byron, a part of the story of this otherwise not so incredible story. Uh, it's for the most part this novel is strange and and kind of compelling, but there's no real bizarreness like this. Several pages that uh, that Pynchon devotes to talking about this light bulb who is immortal. He will never burn out and. Uh, and it, it really has to be read to be uh, believed, but but basically the uh, the idea is that this Phoebus International Lightbulb Cartel, which by the way is really real, and I would direct listeners over to a documentary called The Lightbulb Conspiracy for more on that. There really is a lightbulb cartel that developed in the early part of the 20th century that decided to come together and actually limit the length of lightbulbs, to actually design their lightbulbs to fail so that they could sell more light bulbs. And I think this is becoming more and more part of our general knowledge now, but it's just another indication of how monopoly cartel capitalism works, as opposed to free market capitalism, where people come together to literally design their products to break so that we will be forced to buy more products. So it's kind of amazing to me that back in 1973, Thomas Pynchon was already writing about that, and then he has this bizarre story of Byron the Bulb, a light bulb that just won't burn out. And, uh, and and in this story, Phoebus is monitoring all of their light bulbs in a surveillance room where they discover that one of these bulbs is not burning out. And after 600 hours, they start to take notice of it. After 800 hours, they send someone out to this opium den to go collect Byron the Bulb to, to study him further. And, uh, and he becomes this character in this story, literally a light bulb who appears in people's dreams and talks to them. Again, Gravity's Rainbow is, is a very, very bizarre novel in a lot of ways. But that particular scene about Byron the Bulb always stuck out to me because of its immense bizarreness. The idea of this light bulb that was somehow sentient and was, was immortal and, and was the center of attention in some ways. And that really stuck out with me for years. And, when I saw that report on the IntelliStreets, these streetlights that record your picture and can talk to you and can can record your conversations and tell police how many people are in the area, that really came back to me in a in a very forceful way. That that thing that I'd read all those years ago, and I think in some ways that's really what this whole predictive pro- programming concept is about: the idea that even the most bizarre, the most jarringly bizarre ideas can in fact become part of our daily reality and we don't even think it's that strange because we've seen it before at any rate we'll be back with more predictive programming right after this everyone i know goes away you're listening to the republic broadcasting network because you can handle the truth All right, friends, welcome back. James Corbett here from CorbettReport.com, and you are listening to Corbett Report Radio. And tonight we're talking about 
predictive programming. And before the break, we were listening to some really remarkable excerpts uh, from a book by Thomas Pynchon, Gravity's Rainbow, and the story of Byron the Bulb, and how that improbably, almost unbelievably, ties into the story of IntelliStreets, a new street light that actually monitors you, can talk to you, and can even record your conversations. Again, all sorts of tyrannical technology, all sorts of Orwellian things are coming at us, and it is interesting that George Orwell, the nom de plume of Eric Blair, has entered our vocabulary as an adjective. It's Orwellian. Uh, It's interesting, again, how that, that works, because there are obviously writers and people who have been involved in this, including, I think, H.G. Wells, and I think it behooves you to look into the history of H.G. Wells and who he was, where he came from and the types of books he was writing about, including, of course, The New World Order. But there are those writers who I think are on the inside of all of this, and they do know what's coming, and they are consciously trying to program the people for what's coming in order that, again, as I say, that they'll accept it. If you see something in a movie or you read something in a book, many years later down the road, when it actually happens in real life, you'll be more prepared to accept it. But there's a flip side to this predictive programming, because I think it leaves open the possibility that there are other types of writers who are maybe not on the inside, but have seen the inside, and are trying to warn us about what's on the inside and what's in store for us. So, for example, I think Orwell, or Eric Blair, was very much one of those people. It seems to me that if you read 1984 in Animal Farm, you are reading the work of someone who saw what was coming to to America's doorstep and England's doorstep and the doorsteps of many of the so-called Western democracies in the very near future and trying to warn them about it. And, of course, 1984 taking its name from the reverse of the digits of the year in which the book was written, 1948. But... But there, again, as I say, there are, there are those people who are trying to warn us about these types of things through their work. Does that mean then that that isn't predictive programming? If they're trying to warn us about something that happens and then it happens, well, haven't we been programmed by it? To me, this is one of the fascinating ideas in this whole concept of predictive programming. What is the way around it? How can we ever really stop it? If as long as we're creating fiction, we're probably going to be creating science fiction. So on that note, let's turn to another person who I think was trying to warn us about a nightmarish future that he had envisioned, or perhaps an alternate reality. And I'm talking about Philip K. Dick, the author of, well, lots of short stories and books that were then made into movies. So people probably know him from the the movies that have been based on his stories and books, including, of course, uh, Blade Runner and Total Recall and Minority Report and Scanner Darkly and um, other movies besides. But uh, but he has really, I mean, he was just a fascinating, fascinating author. And if you read about his, his own biography and who he was and the types of experiences he had, I think, I don't know if I want to say he was mentally ill, but he was certainly seeing a reality that most of us weren't. And, um, and he, absolutely fascinating for all of that. So let's read just a little bit um, from his own words, just two years before he, his death, when he was writing about why he wrote about science fiction. He said, I want to write about people I love and put them into a fictional world spun out of my own mind, not the world we actually have, because the world we actually have does not meet my standards. Okay, so I should revise my standards. I'm out of step. I should yield to reality. I have never yielded to reality. That's what SF science fiction is all about. If you wish to yield to reality, go read Philip Roth. Read the New York literary establishment mainstream best-selling writers. This is why I love SF. I love to read it. I love to write it. The SF writer sees not just possibilities, but wild possibilities. 
it's not just what if, what if, it's my God, what if, in frenzy and hysteria, the Martians are always coming. Personally, I love that quote, the Martians are always coming. That is kind of the uh, the underlying precept of most science fiction, I think. So it is a nice way to transition off from Philip Dick in general to one of his stories in particular, Minority Report, which, of course, was remade into a Hollywood flick back in 2002. And I think anyone who's seen the movie knows that this movie has been really the, the blueprint for the last 10 years of tyrannical technology and Basically, everything that we've been seeing coming out in the last 10 years seems to have been placed into this movie. Of course, a Steven Spielberg movie. Um, so make of that what you will. But uh, again, I think Minority Report is one of those movies that if you haven't seen, I think you have to watch it, if only to see what the whole concept of predictive programming is about. So let's move into a clip uh, from, again, from a news broadcast talking about a Minority Report envisioned uh, technology that, in fact, is becoming a reality. So let's move on to clip number two. In the world of advertising, you look at the ads, but soon they'll be watching you. It's a future imagined of the 2002 movie Minority Report. Cameras capture and read Tom Cruise's face, then customize ads for his character pop up. That future is now. This billboard sees you, scans your face, then pulls up an ad you'll like. Here's how this works. When you walk into the ad, a camera captures your image. The computer figures out if you're a man or a woman and your age. Meanwhile, an age and gender-specific ad rolls. This shows that I'm in my 30s and I like seasonal pasta. The computer then determines how interested you are, how long you stay. That data is then recorded for the company. NEC engineer Junko Amagai says the facial recognition technology is accurate to within 10 years of your actual age. And the next-gen system they're testing out is even more age-accurate. This is a new age of advertising, says Amagai. We can learn something we never knew for marketing. Oh, marketing. It's always about marketing or advertising or the IntelliStreets thing was about safety. Oh, it's just about keeping people safe. It's always for the most loving and innocuous reasons that they're wrapping you up in this wonderful, loving, swaddling, protective clothing of this tyrannical technology that watches your every move from the time you step out of your house. And here again, where else but in Japan, they're testing out the minority report technology of advertising that really scans you and knows more about you than you know about it. And uh, again, if you watch that clip, and of course you can get all of these clips and links to them from my homepage, CorbettReport.com slash radio, and uh, I'll post the links, uh, the show notes to this after the show airs. But uh, if you go and watch the clip, you can see this technology that, that, that scans people's faces and records them and, uh, and guesses their age and notes what they're looking at and uh, records that for the company. And of course, what is this? I mean, where where is this information going? Do you think this information is just going to the, for example, the uh, the the pasta company that's advertising a certain pasta so that they can record how many people in their thirties like seasonal pasta, or is this going to an advertising company that is keeping a database of all of this information and will eventually begin to rec- recognize you wherever you go, whatever of their ads you are looking at, and will be able to compile just a complete list of all of your interests and things that you're looking at. It's really quite horrific to think about, especially as we come more and more into an age where where everything we do is being tracked and databased and compiled somewhere. 
including, of course, the ever-present Facebook, which is always monitoring what we're doing and compiling more uh, information for its own list. And there was an interesting report that came out recently about how uh, there, there exists the technology now to steal a wide swath of people's personal information, including their social security numbers, by scanning, taking their picture and putting it into a program which compares all of their pictures against pictures in the Facebook directory, finding their Facebook profile, finding their birth year, and then using a, a formula that apparently exists to predict people's social security numbers from their birth year, and using that to steal their, their social security number. And apparently this can be done in an, an alarming percentage of cases. Uh, I can't remember the, off the top of my head, but it was something approaching 20% of cases they could actually steal someone's social security number with nothing other than your picture. So imagine all of these advertising companies and all of the information they're compiling on you, and if they can nexus into your Facebook profile and all of this, all of this data is being accumulated somewhere. And this is the type of thing that if it just sprang out of nowhere, again, I think people would instantly recognize it for the tyranny that it is. But when we see it approaching ever so slowly and creeping up on us through things like Minority Report, well, maybe we're more prepared to go along with it. Oh, I saw this in a movie. Oh, yes, this, this technology has arrived. Well, I knew it was coming. So, again, just another interesting aspect of this. And, again, I think Philip K. Dick was someone who was very much trying to warn us about these possibilities. The Martians are always coming. But, but here, here we are just accepting it as if it's no big problem. So, again, a fascinating aspect of this predictive programming. And there's another aspect to, to this type of technology and the way that it's uh, being introduced to us that I want to switch to, and that's the concept of microchipping. Because, of course, as people who are keeping their eye on things are aware, the microchipping agenda is going on apace. So, so what we have in the microchipping agenda is this idea that everyone is going to take a microchip and is going to, to, to love it. And for more on this, I would highly recommend a documentary called Predictive Programming and the Human Microchipping Agenda. And I'll include the link to that again in the show notes for today at corporatereport.com slash radio. All right, now let's listen to a clip of an interview in which I'm talking to Greg Nicoletos of No Verichip, in which he's talking about this, this excellent documentary, Predictive Programming and the Human Microchipping Agenda. So let's roll that clip. Yeah, well, look, what it, it is, it, it's, a, it's a very broad and well-researched document, um, which was actually written initially by Matt, which we then decided to, to put into, into a movie. And what it, it covers is basically the beginning of, um, of, you know, of what the New World Order is, how it's actually starting to be mentioned more in society. Um, it then basically covers, you know, predictive programming, which is, you know, the, the, the subtle... Um, not the subtle, it's basically the engineering, I guess, if you like, of society utilizing, um, you know, conditioning programs, whether it be through video, through TV, through media and the like, to basically get you to embrace an idea that you normally wouldn't embrace. So um, we, we give great examples of that, obviously, with Hollywood and the like. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's just very well documented. I'd, re I'd recommend people to actually watch it. So um, it, it, it covers the broad aspect of everything on that side. Uh, yes, absolutely. As would I, I can vouch for that. Certainly I've seen the, the documentary. It is extremely well-researched, and there are so many examples that you provide there of uh, instances in which the media memes are being added in. So it's great, I think, a great resource for people. But uh, is, and, and, and what we do is we, we cover... 
Well, we basically give the, you know, the end user a background of Verichip. We cover, you know, the alliance between IBM. We, we showcase the, the military industrial complex, um, alliance. We showcase, you know, where Verichip is, is taking the product into market. We showcase how, um, you know, RFID is basically being implemented into society. Um, and then ultimately we, we, you know, we say to the people, you know, this is where it's headed. Um, if you can't actually see the writing on the wall, um, it's it's ultimately up to you, but the the reason you know we we've chosen this vehicle, I guess, and to inf- to utilise more Hollywood um, footage in a sense, it, it we, we're then also utilising you know the same tool that they are using against us, which is the sense of familiarity. So when someone has actually seen a movie before, and then we can actually showcase the movie, which has actually showcased you know microchipping in it. Like Wes actually said, who was, you know, the editor is, you know, he, he did so much work on, on the movie, it's ridiculous. Um, a lot of the stuff, you, you just goes over the top of your head. You, it filters into your subconscious, but until you actually see it, you just go, you, you, you realize that, you know, you are being programmed by these, 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 these craftsmen, um, who truly understand the human psyche. So people need to also understand that no, movie at the end of the day that is coming out from Hollywood or from a think tank, um, sometimes these movies aren't there to make a profit. They're, they're basically there to, to, to mould and to shape our, um, our minds. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, large corporations with huge seed funding from, you know, from um, not only the IT but also the military industrial complex and the like and, and a portion of, you know, of their... Um, Propaganda is, you know, is through the media and through and through movies. And you know, when when one goes into a movie, one it wants to be entertained. So obviously, the you know the critical critical thinking component of the brain truly switches off as we you know just sit back and become zombies. And that's not to say, look, that I don't go watch movies, but um, I do. But at the same time, it's you know you have to know what you're seeing and and just pick up on what's happening. You know. That that's so true, and I like the way that you you broke that down because what you're really doing in this movie is kind of reverse engineering the social engineering that they're programming us with exactly. through, through this media. Yeah, exactly. It's we're we're showing them what they are doing to them by utilizing their techniques, I guess. So it just breeds a sense of familiarity. So when you know, so when we actually showcase movies that you know that they have used. Um, People immediately embrace it and say, okay, well, I understand the minority report. You know, I understand, you know, all these other movies that have actually showcased microchipping from James Bond and the like. So, um, then we're not actually telling the story to the, to the end user. Hollywood is telling the story. So therefore, you can't actually demonize, you know, we're the people not be chipped or, you know, our movement or we basically have them becoming storytellers and, um, and and I think that's what that's what's actually made this movie go quite viral, which is excellent. Once again, Greg Nicoletos of the We the People Will Not Be Chipped movement at wakeup.tv. That's W-A-K-E-U-P dot TV. And for people who haven't been there yet, I, I really suggest that you go there for just an excellent overview and a resource on the whole human microchipping agenda that's being inserted into our society and which we are no doubt being prepped for um, each and every day through the media that we're consuming. And for people who, who don't 
understand that or don't believe it or want to see more, again, I could not recommend highly enough predictive programming and the human microchipping agenda. And that is linked prominently right there on the front page of wakeup.tv. So if people go there, they can watch it in its entirety right there on Vimeo. And uh, and as we say in that clip, I mean, there's just so many examples of it um, from X-Files episodes to the Time Bandits movie to the Simpsons episodes to Universal Soldier and the Conspiracy Theory movie from 1997 with Mel Gibson and just so many different uh, clips are in there that uh, that any one of them taken by themselves are probably not that compelling. But when you start to compile them all and look at them all and look how they're preparing us for this future in which everyone has a microchip inside their body and we're just being slowly introduced to the idea. The, the technology is already there, and some people even already have this technology. But how are they going to get us all to accept this technology and accept the idea of it unless they start feeding us with these, uh, these, this daily stream of media introducing us to the idea? So I think it's quite obvious from, from that perspective alone how the predictive programming scheme works and whose interest it's really serving because as Greg Nicoletos was speaking there and he speaks from experience he was talking about the idea that uh, that this is all being funded by the mainstream IT companies all right well we're coming up on a break and as we do let's come back after this with some more on the predictive programming idea and some of the real mysteries of this idea at least mysteries from my perspective Welcome back, my friends, to tonight's edition of Corbett Report Radio. And here in the final few minutes, we'll continue our discussion of predictive programming and the ways that it functions to prepare us for what's coming in the future. But as I said before the break, there's something very mysterious about, or at least one mysterious aspect of predictive programming that completely eludes me and that I can't put my finger on. So perhaps I'll leave it to you, the listeners out there, to think about and to get back to me either on air some other time or perhaps uh, through the, my email on CorbettReport.com. But it's the concept of, well, how should I say this? For example, let's take 9-11. Now, most people have probably seen or heard about the rather remarkable prediction of the events of 9-11 in the pilot episode of The Lone Gunman, a spin-off series from The X-Files. And the pilot episode aired just a few months before 9-11 and featured some some people in the government staging a terrorist event by hijacking an airplane by remote control and trying to fly it into the World Trade Center. And then, of course, one of the stars of that show, Dean Haglund, came out later and said, oh, by the way, Chris Carter, the creator of The X-Files and the creator of this show, well, he'd been slipped some ideas by the CIA at various Hollywood cocktail parties over the years. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. So that, to me, is extremely interesting, an extremely interesting linkage that needs to be explored more. But there are other things to do, for example, with predictive programming in 9-11 that I can't personally put my finger on. And an example of that, um, well, one example would come from the Matrix movie itself, where I think a lot of people know now that if you actually freeze frame the exact second 
where uh, Arthur, what is it, Arthur Anderson, not Arthur Anderson, where uh, Mr. Anderson, I forget what his first name in the book is, Neo, gets his passport handed to him, and there's a split second where you can actually freeze the frame, and if you flip it around, you can actually see that his passport expires on September 11th, 2001, which is a rather remarkable piece of information to be included in The Matrix of all films, which I think we all know is something of a predictive programming meme generator for our current day and age. But what does that mean? I mean, I can't imagine a reality in which the prop maker for The Matrix was in on the 9-11 plot or that the filmmakers were let in on the day of the plot. I just can't imagine how that kind of information could possibly have gotten to, uh, to that level. So I don't see any way that that kind of thing can really function. Another really interesting example I'll direct your attention to, uh, you can find on the Prison Planet forum under the title Comic Book Conspiracy Symbols and Messages in Comic Books. Just an absolutely fascinating thread with dozens and dozens and dozens, really hundreds of examples of comic books predicting such things as the destruction of the World Trade Center. And if you see one of them out of context, you would think, oh, well, that's just that's just uh, just a coincidence. But when you see literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of them piled up, you start to wonder if there's something more going on. So I don't know what that more going on really is. Is there really some sort of concerted effort among, for example, comic book creators to try to implant ideas about 9-11 decades in advance? Or is there something more archetypal going on, some sort of collective consciousness thing going on about the destruction of the Twin Towers or even, of course, the uh, the idea that, that that has its Freemasonic links in the destruction of the towers. Well, way, way too much to get into, I think, right now. But at any rate, I'll leave you with that tonight. And uh, once again, all I can say is you have to start researching this for yourself if you haven't already done so. And I'm sure many of you have, because this is a fascinating subject. But we'll leave it there for tonight. That's all for Corbett Report Radio, and this is James Corbett reminding you that you can find all of the clips and articles mentioned in every episode on CorbettReport.com radio. Until tomorrow night, take care, and happy listening. <laughs>